When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 97 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today my guest is Naomi Harris. She's a 40-year-old British actress who began her career as a child, then broke through onto the scene in 28 Days Later back in 2002, and in the years since has starred in movies both big and small. Blockbusters that she's been a part of include Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, as well as two Bond movies, Skyfall and Spectre. She's also done some mid-range movies, most notably playing Winnie Mandela in Mandela Long Walk to Freedom, But in my view, she has shined most of all in some small-budget movies, including The First Grader, a no-budget movie that she made in 2010, and most recently in Moonlight, a low-budget film from writer-director Barry Jenkins that had its world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival back in September and has become the talk of the festival circuit ever since. A24 Films will release it on October 21st. Over the course of our conversation, Harris and I talked about a wide range of subjects, including what it's been like playing a Bond girl unlike any other who came before her, why playing Winnie Mandela was such a daunting challenge, and what it was about the character that she plays in Moonlight that was more complex and demanding than any other part she'd ever played before. She opens up about why she almost turned down the opportunity, what it was like shooting her whole performance in just three days, and how she thinks a film that deals with major taboo subjects, particularly in the black community, will be received upon its release. It's a fascinating conversation with a rising star who I am convinced is on her way to the Oscars, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to that conversation. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. 
Naomi, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate you coming in. My pleasure. To begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised, and what did or do your folks do for a living? So I was born and raised in London, in Finsbury Park, which is a very multicultural area in London. And my mother was... Wow, she started off initially as a children's writer. She used to make up children's stories for me mm-hmm. to send me to sleep. And then she actually decided to sell them. And that started her career as a writer. That's and great. she went on to write, you know, Freestenders and had her own sitcom and so on. Wow. Yeah. From what I understand, before any script or or anything ever appealed to you in terms of acting, performing that, was it originally sort of the Bible that was your yeah. your thing? <laughs> T- talk about with that. I mean, I've tried to read up, and that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, so my, um, my granddad gave me this children's Bible, and I don't know why, but it just became something that I was really obsessed with. I think it was one of the first things that I could read, and it was like it was the creation story, and I would just hold people hostage in my mom's <laughs> sitting room and like just perform for them whether they liked it or not, you know. And was there something about that? Was it the performance element or the reaction that you got? What do you think it was that that maybe started this path? I don't think it was ever about the reaction. It was always about the performance itself. I just really loved imagining that I was a different person and then creating these different worlds and inhabiting them. I, I used to spend hours in front of the mirror as a child doing different voices and also just trying to make myself cry as well. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really, really strange child. Well, was, the seeds were there. But now you have talked about the fact that before really going off to theater school, I guess, you were not the happiest of children what it was was that what we're talking about maybe just inner turmoil that maybe even you couldn't understand what or what was what was that about I think the the unhappiness for me really started because I was bullied at school so that's when I became unhappy but before then I was I was very happy at primary school mm-hmm. so I was I was very happy there but I was still used to do this thing of trying to make myself cry in front <laughs> of the mirror so I think I think that acting bug was always there irrespective of what happened I think the bullying at school actually made me retreat further into that imaginary world. What were they bullying um, you about? I was bullied because basically when I was at primary school, I was on a TV show and it was a very successful TV show. And so I was well known as a kid. And they, there was just a lot of jealousy, basically. That was it. Yeah. You know, I started in secondary school and I wanted to just kind of be like everybody else mm-hmm. and fit in. But I already stood out because they all knew who I was and it was just kind of fun to make fun of me. So I have to ask just how did that TV show come about? What was what was that? So the TV show was called Simon and the Witch and it came about because I started going to an after school club called the Anashir Theatre School, which is actually a really well known theatre school in London. Mm-hmm. And what it is, it's it's a school that was set up by this lovely woman called Anashir for inner city kids to kind of have to, something to do after school so that they wouldn't get in trouble mm-hmm. and get into fights mm-hmm. and you know get involved in crime and so on. So lots of amazing actors like Pauline Quirk and so on, they all started off at the Anashir Theatre and it's a really beloved theatre club. And you had enjoyed that, you felt you were benefiting from it and that's what led to the Simon and the Witch opportunity? Yes, so Anashir Theatre actually had a agency attached to the theatre club and I got 
joined up when I was very young, which I was very, very happy about because it was like a real achievement. You know, it was great to go to the club, but to get in, onto the agent's books was like amazing. <laughs> so I was so excited right, about it. Right. And yeah, I went for my first ever audition, which was for this TV show, Simon and the Witch, all about a witch that comes to primary school. And all the kids know that she's a witch, but the teachers are completely oblivious. <laughs> and you're one of the kids. So, and yeah. I was one of the kids. <laughs> and yeah, and I, I got my first ever audition. Which was so amazing. It was incredible. Afterwards, you were pretty much, I, I know there was uh, the CBS series Runaway Bay. Yes. Runaway now, that Bay. was right as a result of Simon and the Witch, or were you pretty steadily working throughout your I basically youth? worked nonstop once I started. Once I started Simon and the Witch, I worked every single summer. I was only allowed to work in the summer in because the summer. I, you know, yeah, I, I couldn't miss too much school. But yeah, I worked every single summer doing different shows. And it obviously didn't affect your studies too much. You ended up at Cambridge, which was a pretty nice thing. And But that was also not the happiest time for you there? No, I, God, it's really sounding like a really no. sad story. Let's <laughs> it can all, it's, it's start low and get better. Out. Yeah, let's get better. <laughs> <laughs> no, Cambridge wasn't the happiest of times because I came from a very working class background. My mum had me when she was 18 years old. Mm. She raised me on welfare mm-hmm. for the first part of my life. So I was very, very working class. And I came from this incredibly multicultural background. As I told you before, you know, Finsbury Park is like the melting pot, mm-hmm. you know, all different races. And I didn't even realize when I was growing up, I didn't even realize like I was black mm-hmm. or what that, that that meant anything, you know, because everybody was different colors, mm-hmm. which was really beautiful, actually. Mm-hmm. And then going to Cambridge was this extraordinary experience where suddenly I was the only black person in my entire year. Really? In my college, oh my at Pembroke God. College. And people were from completely different classes to me. They were middle class and upper middle class and aristocrats having gone to Eton and so on. So from completely different backgrounds to mine. And I just found it such an alienating experience. I found it incredibly hard to make friends and to fit in. And yeah, it was not a happy Do you think it was sort of bigotry on the part of others or just a sense of not belonging that you were feeling? I think it was... It was just a sense of not belonging. Mm-hmm. I think I've always, I've always felt quite an outsider, and I think that really exacerbated that mm-hmm. sense for me. Mm-hmm. And I never managed to really overcome that mm-hmm. and really find my group yeah. while I was at university, mm-hmm. which is such a shame because I hear people talk about university and they say, "Oh my God, I had such an amazing <laughs> time!" And you know, wasn't it wonderful? And I think, oh, oh gosh, mine wasn't like that right. at all. I just remember just sort of like. Wanting to go home every weekend, right, right. really missing my family and my friends at home. Well, so. those people, I think, might trade with you at the moment. So <laughs> after Cambridge, yeah. Bristol Old Vic Theatre Happier School. Happier times. Happier times. Happier that was times. the turning point? That was the turning point, yeah, because I was finally doing something that I really, really loved. You know, I was training to be an actress. I was with... Uh, the average age in my year was actually 30. Wow. Yeah. So I was like 22 or 23 when yeah. I started. And so I was like the youngest there. So everyone was really mature. Everyone was incredibly dedicated. They were there just because they wanted to learn about acting. And they were really serious about it as well, which I loved. And I got to practice my craft. Yeah. You know? So I had a blast. It was fantastic. But coming out of Cambridge or, or even while you were there, you there was never any wavering about the fact that this was what you wanted to do. I mean, sometimes with, I would imagine with that degree or, you know, you, you had a lot of choices and maybe I don't know how your mother felt about this mm-hmm. path. Sometimes parents want the practical career. Yeah. Did you ever 
waver in the idea that this was what you wanted to do? Never, never. I actually wanted to leave because I was, as I said, bullied at um, secondary school. I wanted to leave school and go straight into acting. And it was my mum who begged me to stay on at school because she said, you know, if you just get at least your A levels, I don't know what the yeah, no, is I know in the what States. you mean. I, I guess like SATs, maybe. Okay, so, yeah. yeah. If you just at least pass them, then she said, if Look. you ever want to go to university, then you have that, and it just makes it easier. And I just thought my mum has never asked anything of me, really. She's always just said, do what you want to do mm-hmm. with your life, and mm-hmm. anything is possible. So I said, you know, I said to myself, if she's asking me to do this, it must be incredibly important for her. So I'll do it for her. And then I had a really inspirational teacher while I was at um, doing my A-levels called Mr. Murdoch. And he said, look, you have the potential to go to Oxbridge. And so it was largely because of Mr. Murdoch that I ended up going to Cambridge because otherwise I would have gone straight into acting. So I, I never doubted that acting was what I right. was born to do. So where chronologically did what I believe was your your big break? And I th- I guess you were probably only just a few months out of out of drama school when you mm-hmm. got this break with 28 days later, right? I was actually nine months out of drama school, so I'd spent nine months being unemployed. <laughs> it was I pretty had, short I for actually, people, right? I it's mean, really yeah. short, but at the time, it does it, not no, it feel, doesn't feel short, that way. <laughs> especially when you've been a, a child actor and you've been working nonstop. Yeah. And so, you know, I left drama school and I thought, okay, it's going to be the same. You right. know, I'll just get an audition, <laughs> get a job. And I auditioned, right. and I auditioned, and there was no's and no's. And so it was a really um, scary time for me, actually. And the only job I got was I got this tiny theater job. And I actually, the the train ride to the theater each day was more than what I was being paid. And oh I was paid gosh. 30 pounds a week. So it was a loss for you to do <laughs> this. <laughs> so but. to go from that to then getting the call from Danny Boyle right. and being, you know, auditioned by him and him actually championing me because he was the one who after my first audition said this is the girl that I want and he rang me at home and he said I want you to come back but you sound too posh for this role (laughs) so you know work on the accent come back but you're the one that I want. Now, how did he even know you existed? Was there an agent or somebody that connected you guys? Yeah, I had an agent at the time. I got an agent when I left drama school, and my agent just put me forward. I didn't even know when I was auditioning that it was actually for the lead role. (laughs) So it was all a bit of a massive shock, really. And also, I didn't really know who Danny Boyle was at that point. So once I did my research, once I'd got the role, then I was kind of so shocked a little intimidated, so over maybe. the moon yeah. and really intimidated yeah. <laughs> as well the other aspect i guess of of preparing to play that character was a lot of physical preparation right for for that one yeah there was a lot of physical preparation because you know selena the character that i played this machete wielding woman she's she's really really tough so i had to learned to do a lot of stunt works. And my love affair with stunts began. Began there, yeah, it all became in use. But now Danny is kind of well-known, I think, for for doing a lot of takes. Was that, I mean, maybe that I wasn't the case at that, that time. I not know that, that's so funny, because Danny seems like nothing, because I worked with Michael Mann. Oh. So, <laughs> and Michael Mann that's loves a lot of takes. to do oh, like my God. a minimum of 20 So Danny takes. didn't jar so, you. No, yeah. Danny was like easy right. for me. That same year, 2002, or at least coming out the same year as 28 Days Later, was White Teeth. One of my favorite roles. And I've you've talked about that almost some in some ways, I think, being a break in, in its own way. Maybe it's not as well-known of a yeah. movie, but it was, for you, a, 
a particularly gratifying one? Yeah. You know, it's just, it's really exciting when you find characters within yourself that you never knew were there, you know, and I just found the, that character, I just, she's just so completely far removed from me that actually it was terrifying in the beginning because I thought, how am I ever going to reach her? How am I going to do this accent? That's when I found that the real joy in acting is always to be scared and is always to take something that really challenges you to push you outside of your comfort zone. Because when you find characters like that, you grow as a person. Mm -hmm. For people who haven't seen that, can you just tell a little bit about who this character was, Clara? Because it did require a lot of, as you're saying, a lot of work on your part. Clara was this very, um, she'd grown up with this very repressive parents. And so she is from Jamaican background and she meets this guy and sort of is sexually liberated by him and starts to come out of her shell and um, finally blossom into being a woman. Mm -hmm. Now, that movie, even 28 Days Later, these are, you know, you're starting to do, I guess, bigger and bigger movies, but nothing really, I guess, could have probably prepared you for the Pirates experience because these are massive, massive studio movies. So just to begin, I mean, we, we you, you did in 2006 Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, then 2007 Pirates of the Caribbean, World's End. I don't know if maybe they were even shot together at the same... No, no. there was a massive break in between oh, them, right. actually, yeah. But how did that come about, and was it something that you knew you wanted to do? Did you know what you were signing up for with such a with such a big kind of thing? So basically that came about because I was I was asked to come and audition. But the director, Gore, was quite he was quite honest about the fact that actually he didn't think I was right for it. And so it was kind of like come in on audition, but you're not you're not going to get the part, you know, because he already had someone in mind and he always imagined that she was a very voluptuous character, Mm -hmm. which I'm not. And so, you know, he had this very strong image in his mind. And uh, I, I read for him and he said, I like it. <laughs> you know, I uh, do you want to come to the Caribbean and shoot wow. this? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So that was that was an amazing experience because I managed to change his mind yeah, you know, there awesome. and then in the room. And Tia Dalmer is one of my favorite roles that I've ever played. Why? Talk um, about it. I love. I love the creation process when I'm creating characters. And what I loved about Tia Dalmer is that she's not constrained by reality at all. She can be absolutely anything. And she can she can change, you know, at a whim's notice and become sad or happy or angry or, you know, she's not limited at all by societal constraints. And those are the roles which I enjoy playing most because they're the most fun. They're the most freeing. Right. Now, continuing this pattern of going back and forth between very small, very big movies. One of the nicest movies that I think people can check out is The First Grader, which is mm. a probably, do you remember what the budget was on that? It must have been... I don't even remember the minuscule, budget. Though, right? Yeah, really small. And really small. this is Justin Chadwick, the, the filmmaker who ended up going on to other things as well. But mm. basically, here you are working with, I think, 80 Kenyan children, yep, right? that's right. And yeah. this has got to be unlike anything else you've... And in a, in a no-budget yeah. movie, I don't know where it was shot, but it must have been an interesting one. Yeah, it was It was really one of the most heartwarming experiences for me and one of those experiences where you really get an insight into a, a community that you would never normally in everyday life have access mm-hmm. to. So basically, Justin said, 
we want to he wanted to film documentary style and these children came from such poor homes that you know that they'd never really even seen televisions you know they barely lots of them didn't have shoes the only meal that they ate was the one meal a day that they got at school so for them to have a camera in their school they didn't really understand what it all kind of meant mm-hmm. so because of that, we were able to introduce me as a new teacher. Mm-hmm. And that's how they saw me. They called me Teacher Jane and they really thought I was Teacher right. Jane. And so often like in takes, uh, a little child would come up and say, Miss, I've done my homework, you know, because <laughs> they really thought, you know, this was just school for them. And so for two weeks before we actually started shooting, I taught these 80 children. They were my class. And, you know, I trained as a teacher with, you know, the other teachers in the school. And that was really, really incredible. And it was most incredible because they were so hungry to learn Mm -hmm. and are so appreciative of everything. You know, they'd play with just a rock Mm -hmm. at, at, you know, in break time. Mm -hmm. And they'd come up with all these imaginative games and spend hours just playing with like just rocks. And I just thought of my brother and sister who are 20 years younger than Mm me, who I love dearly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they have all these gadgets and all the most (laughs) expensive toys and they're bored. They're always bored, you know. (laughs) It was such, yeah, a huge education. How did that movie once it came out how do you think it affected them if at all and how did it how did the experience affect you going forward it affected me because I realized that what I really like is immersive experiences and experiences that really stretch me and where I get to really learn something and grow as a person Mm -hmm. because Ultimately, I think the two have to go hand in hand. And I think as a performer, you're always trying to grow, you know, and the more access to different areas of life that you have, more experience of different uh, areas of life, I think the better the the actor that you become. Going back then pretty soon after that to another blockbuster was the beginning of Money Penny with Skyfall. Did you ever imagine you would be in a Bond movie? And was that even something that... Some people dream of certain things in the movies. Mm-hmm. This is just a, a kind of probably experience unlike any other. Yeah. You know, I never dreamed of being in a Bond movie because I never thought it was a possibility because, you know, the Bond girls up until that point had been usually in their 20s. And also they'd have certain assets, you know, that voluptuous figure <laughs> that I just don't have, you know. I'm more like a stick insect. So um, I just thought I'll never... I'll never be offered that kind of role. So it was really weird to me when I got asked to come in and meet Sam Mendes and I was auditioning with him and he was like seriously considering me. <laughs> and I, I, when I first went in, I just thought, well, you know, they're auditioning. I know they audition thousands of actresses. Right, they right. go all around the world. I thought this is a whole thing. You know, I'm just being brought in just to <laughs> pad up the numbers. And then Sam said, no, you know, it's down between you and just two other women. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Wow. I didn't understand. And was it and then, exciting, the prospect, though, of that coming through? Or it I would was have been... perplexed. Yeah, right, I right. I just thought, I just don't see it. Right. And then when they they sat me down and, you know, Barbara and Michael and mm-hmm. Sam said, you know, actually, this role, she starts off and you think she's a Bond girl and then she ends up as Miss Moneypenny. And I thought, oh, that, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> they need an actress now. They don't, <laughs> the assets are not all they need. So. Exactly. <laughs> right. So the other thing that kind of distinguishes her from a lot of other Bond girls, or as I know you began referring to them in the promotion, Bond women, mm-hmm. was that she's sort of going through the same kinds of things that he is. She's taking the same risks, making the same sacrifices. From that point of view, was it easier to 
or more comfortable to go out and then subsequently promote and talk about these movies, knowing that it is sort of a bond for the 21st century, not in any way just sort of a... She's a, not arm candy. No. You know, she's not at all. She's, you know, she's going toe-to-toe with him, and she's grappling with the same issues that he's grappling with. And I love that. And she's feisty, and she's witty, and she give, gives as good as she gets. Mm-hmm. And for all of those reasons, I love her, mm-hmm. and I loved playing with her. And I also loved working with Daniel as well. You know, I, I think he's an extraordinary actor. And I think he is the best modern Bond that we've had. Yeah. So for all of those reasons, it was an incredible experience for me. And was there ever any doubt that you would be back, I guess, three years later with Spectre? Or was or you were excited to keep going? No, I was really excited to keep going. Yeah. You know, working on the Bond franchise is like, unlike any other experience that I've ever had. Because people talk about, you know, making this kind of community when you make a film and, you know, having friends on set and what have you. But really, when you make a Bond movie, it's really like you join a family. And it genuinely is like that. Because at the helm, you have Barbara and Michael, Mm -hmm. this brother and sister team. And there's so much love between them, obviously. And they are continuing the legacy of their father, Mm -hmm. Cubby Broccoli, who started this whole franchise. So there's so much love poured into it. And they really treat you as though you are a member of the family. Still, every year, every birthday, Barbara always remembers my birthday. Every Christmas, I get this huge hamper from her. (laughs) You know, I get invited to family lunches with her. That's great. And you really, yeah, you really just feel like you are part of this incredible family that people feel so passionately about. And they're so happy to be part of and so committed. And so that's that's a real luxury because in filmmaking, there's no continuity. You're like a gypsy traveling around the world with your suitcases and there are all these new faces yeah. and so to be able to go back and work with this amazing team who are so gorgeous right. and it's something very special and I, I definitely would never want to give that up. Well so I'm just trying to recall here off the top of my head how we left it with Money Penny at the last at the end of Spectre. Is there any reason we wouldn't be seeing you in an additional installment? No, there's not. I uh, didn't. I didn't get blown up. Okay, or okay. I believe I, that would have been a, that would have been awkward. So. <laughs> now I wonder, though. I guess probably starting with the with the pirates films, and then certainly with the Bond films, your recognizability in the world changed mm-hmm. a lot, and you have made it very clear the reasons why you got into this stuff. But with the exposure comes additional baggage, and I just wonder how you adjusted to being a well-known person and if you are still able to enjoy what you do as much or if it's if it became a impediment so it's really interesting actually because people kept asking me that and have kept asking me that for a long time and genuinely nothing changed when I did pirates because obviously I was wearing so much makeup and the dreadlocks and the black goo oozing (laughs) out of my mouth and all that kind of stuff (laughs) I wasn't recognizable so nobody associated me with my role And also, you know, 28 days later as well, I had a very different haircut, a very short, tomboyish haircut. And and also, I'm completely different to Selena. I'm not machete-wielding or tarful, (laughs) you know what I mean, in everyday life. So again, people didn't recognize me at all. It's only changed within the last, I would say, year and a half with, I think, Spectre for some reason. I don't know why. But, um, yeah, because it didn't do with Skyfall, but it did with Spectre. Yeah, I, I, don't, I really don't. That's weird. Yeah, it's really weird. I'm not sure what's happened, but now I get recognized a lot. And how do you how do you deal with it? I mean, are people generally 
good about it or are you dealing with weirdos and whack jobs in the no, usual? <laughs> no, I, I haven't had any <laughs> no. weirdos at all. At all. Right. People are just incredibly generous mm-hmm. and just want to congratulate you and say they love you, your work and just take a photo with you mm-hmm. and, you know, which is, you know, I'm not bombarded. I'm right. not like, I don't know, Johnny Depp or something, <laughs> you know, where you can't walk down the street. Right, right. I'll just have maybe two, maybe three people a day mm-hmm. who'll say, I really like your work, Naomi. And that's actually a really nice thing, yeah. you know. So, so far, it hasn't been problematic at all. It's actually just been really lovely. That's and it's, great. And it's, it's also a privilege as well to be able to brighten someone's day, mm-hmm. you know, just by taking a photo with them. It actually makes them feel so happy. So Was there somebody like that when you were a kid, when you were, you know, discovering movies or TV or whatever? Who would have been the person Michael for you? Jackson. Really? Yeah, without a doubt. I spent hours listening to his music really? like every day. He was I used to imagine that he would pick me up from school and like <laughs> he was just I was obsessed. I used to paint pictures of me and Michael Jackson and wow. send them to him to the fan club. Yeah, yeah. And it's so annoying cuz I did, I did this um, film called After the Sunset yeah. with Brett Ratner. Yeah. And Brett Ratner was Knew best him. friends yeah. with Michael Jackson at the time and he was due to come on set. And I remember it, I was just like, this would be every dream of mine come true if Michael Jackson came on set. And I never got to meet him. Because that was around the time that he passed away? I think he was ill at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, he passed away. So, Well, that's maybe yeah, in, in, so. in a weird respect, maybe it's maybe it's good to remember him the way that you remember him. Yeah, from, maybe from but, all my posters. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that speaking of, you know, heroes, or he was sounds like one of your heroes. You were a part of a movie about one of probably the maybe the greatest hero of, of my lifetime, mm-hmm. who was Nelson Mandela. My mom's mm-hmm. South African, so I grew up knowing about this guy. And then to see a Mandela long walk to freedom, his mm-hmm. autobiography essentially mm-hmm. made into this film in 2013 was really exciting. And then to see you as Winnie was particularly nice, and I guess. In terms of the director, mm-hmm. a reunion, right, for you, with this was Justin again. Mm-hmm. But when you first heard that somebody wanted you to play Winnie Mandela, what was your reaction? Terror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just, you know, it, it actually, it's one of those things where I was really terrified when I got off with the role because I just thought she's a living icon to many people. And it, it's, it's always tricky portraying someone who's living as well because mm-hmm. there is even more expectations about, how they should be played and then I started to research her and then it became even more terrifying because I realized that she's such a divisive character mm-hmm. and people see her in such radically different ways you know some people see her as this saint mother earth figure right. leading this movement and others as literally a murderer the devil an embezzler all these kind of things and I was like how am I gonna marry these two opposing views of who this woman is and where do I find this woman in the middle of all of that as well like who ultimately is she because it seems like they're talking about two completely different people so it was a really scary experience but what helped me was actually sitting down with Winnie and I said you know how do you want to be portrayed and I expected her to say well show me as the same right, of, right, of course and i'd feel like well i'm constrained a little because you know yeah. <laughs> you know the producers have sat me down with right. her and she said this right. so i've got to do this right but actually she gave the power back to me which i thought was incredibly generous and she just said play me as you see fit because you have been chosen because you're right for this role 
So you do your research and you pay me as you want. And it ended up being, though, still, even with that permission, mm-hmm. where would this rank in the terms in terms of the most challenging parts you've played? Oh, my gosh. Uh, definitely one of the most. One of the most, Top right? two. Yeah. 100% yeah. top two, yeah. And what was the secret in the end to navigating that? I mean, navigating that line between hero and villain, in a sense. You know, where, how did you figure out how to do it? I think she's both. Mm-hmm. I think she really is both, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted to portray both of those things, which was a little bit of a struggle, I have to say, with our producers, because they are very good friends with Winnie Mandela, mm-hmm. and particularly announcing, you know, and that's how he got the rights right. to the film project right. was because of that relationship. So he felt he wanted to portray her in a very particular light. Right. And I always think as a performer, my job is to get to the heart of, you know, I've got to be like a detective and get to the truth, right. you know. And I was just lucky enough that I was working with Justin, who allowed me the freedom to explore right. both ranges of who she is. Did you ever speak with her after the film was seen by her? I did, and she was in tears. Um, it was in South Africa after the South African premiere. Wow. She said she never wanted to see it again, but she said it was almost like I had somehow found a way of channeling her life wow. and channeling her on screen. And she said no one had ever depicted her better. That's a hell of a compliment. So that's great. I was, I was like, job done. Yeah, yes. that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I guess emerged as we go through these films is that you have a Meryl Streep-like ability to do these accents. We've got <laughs> Calypso. We've got Jamaican. We've got South African. We've got. I'm sure I'm leaving out others. Is that something that just kind of comes easily? No, it doesn't come easily, but I like it. You know, I like playing characters that are as the further the character is away from me the more comfortable I become I don't really like playing things that are very close to me so an accent adds another layer of you know removing them from me and it's also a great way of because you know accents give you different ways of um, rhythms of speech they also change the way that you can express yourself as well they they're kind of limiting as well as giving you freedom as well Mm -hmm. and I like that because it forces me to think in a different way if I've got a different accent as well but it is always scary because I always there's never enough time because you usually don't have very much preparation time for a movie so the accent is the basic because you have to get that and then completely forget about it. Do you have a default way of doing it? Are you just listening over and over to tapes or something, or what do you do? I find what really helps me is to work with an accent coach because they hear things which I can't hear, and they can explain them in a way that someone with the accent can't really explain it Mm -hmm. because they can't hear themselves. So that really helps me initially. And then it's to immerse myself. So I, what I do is, like, in South Africa, I just hung around with people who had the kind of accent that we had, and I just... I did the accent the whole time with them until I got over the point where I felt awkward. You know, I just did it all the time. And I did it all the time on set as well until the point where I could, when I could get to the point where I could switch backwards and forwards between my own and the accent, then I would let it go and I could, you know, be myself on set. But until that point, I was playing Winnie the whole time. Right. Well, if playing somebody very different from yourself is where you feel most comfortable, I think you probably, in one sense, not every sense, but in one sense, probably felt very comfortable with Moonlight, because everything about this woman seems far removed from you. To set the scene, this is the crack-addicted mother, Paula, of this this boy who we are seeing grow up over a period of like 20 years. And I guess before we talk anything further about the movie, just how did the 
material even first crossed your radar? And did you already know who Barry Jenkins, the writer-director, was? Because his only prior movie was like eight years ago and not widely seen. Yeah. I was presented with the material. It came from Jeremy Kleiner, the producer of Moonlight, and he'd wanted me to do another project that he'd been working on, but it hadn't kind of worked out. So he suggested me to Barry and um, sent me the script, and I read it, and and I... cried my eyes out I thought this is such a beautiful script but I didn't know anything about Barry Jenkins so then I went and watched because you can find Barry's first film Medicine for Men where did you find it I'm trying to find it YouTube really it's on YouTube in four (laughs) parts you can just yeah download it yeah it's great so I watched it and I couldn't believe it was made for $17,000 and it is hands down one of the best films that I've ever seen. Wow. It's so beautifully shot and um, so moving and so original as well that I just thought this is a filmmaker that I want to work with. And that being said, when you were presented with this definite offer to do it, was it an mm-hmm. obvious yes for you or was there some hesitation? No, there was, there was quite a bit of hesitation because... You know, I've always said that as an actor, you don't have very much choice. So, you know, you're not producing the material yourself. You're not writing it and you're not directing it. And what you do with your work is you hand it over to somebody else to dissect. You know, the editors pull it apart. The director does what he wants with it. So the only area of real power that you have is about what you choose to do material wise. And I'd always said at the very beginning of my career that I wanted to make a real effort to portray women in a very positive light and also particularly black women in a positive light. And I'd always drawn the line, therefore, at playing a crack addict Mm -hmm. because I thought there are enough stereotypical roles out there. I don't want to add another one Mm -hmm. to the mix. And then here I was presented with this amazing role and this amazing script and an amazing film Mm -hmm. director and but it was playing a crack addict. So I was really hesitant about taking on the role. But I spoke to Barry Jenkins. We had a Skype call and I said, you know, I'm not sure I want to take this on. And he said, Naomi, I don't want to ask you to play another stereotype. But the reality is this is my mother's story. This is Terrell, the writer's mother's story as well. So what do we do? We want to tell our story and we have to include our mothers. So we have to find a way of telling her story that's non-stereotypical. And I thought, I've never had anyone ask me to play their mother, first of Mm -hmm. all. And also, number two, I thought, well, they they have a vested interest in making sure that she's not a stereotype, that that I'm given a real opportunity to portray this woman, but with showing all the multi-layers and complexities and humanity as well um, that she has. In terms of even just making it logistically possible for you to do this, that was going through a lot of hoops, too, from what I saw Jeremy at, at Telluride, I, mm-hmm. where this movie premiered, and he gave me a little bit of insight into what <laughs> happened. Can you share what you had to do to just be able to show up on set? So what happened was I was um, doing for the promotional tour for Spectre. So I was in a different country every three or four days mm-hmm. promoting the movie, and I don't know how it worked out. I think it was to do with visa issues. There was something happening at the visa office at that time where they just weren't issuing visas. Mm -hmm. It seemed as though it was really touch and go whether I would actually do this movie. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being that all we had was three days to shoot the whole thing. So you were at these junkets for Spectre. Yes. And between each city, you would have like a day? 
or how how would it work with because I know you I the thing that blew my mind was that yeah. you did this part in just three days yeah no 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 we did it in three consecutive days three consecutive days yeah that's the only window that I had so before because of the visa issue you weren't yeah. able to go off to wherever you were no I wasn't because I think I was supposed to shoot it in over maybe six days or something uh-huh. like that and fly in and fly out again but it didn't work out so it ended up being just three days where we had to cram in absolutely everything that's insane and yeah. obviously I, I would assume that means no rehearsal time no there's no rehearsal <laughs> <laughs> and additionally yeah. no getting to know the other characters yeah. no getting to know my son yeah because you've got three or, actors yep. playing your son and you know little Alex as well who's never acted before and is only 11 years old so how do you overcome that when you show up and you got to get right into it you do a hell of a lot of research, you know, because I knew that I, I was going to go in and I had to hit the ground running and I had to be fully prepared. So, you know, YouTube is an amazing mine of information. <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary. You can find anything on mm-hmm. YouTube. So I was watching back-to-back documentaries about crack addiction, mm-hmm. crack addiction in Miami in the 80s, interviews with crack addicts and just exploring because the hardest aspect for me to crack was this whole area of addiction Mm -hmm. to drugs because I'm very clean living Mm -hmm. I don't you know I don't smoke I don't drink any alcohol and I don't even drink coffee so like (laughs) to go from me to full-blown crack addiction was something really hard to get my my head around but what really helped me there were two things that really helped me First of all, there was a woman who described the way that addiction comes about. And she described it as being like starting a relationship with a psychopathic lover. And that really made sense to me because what she said in the beginning, the drugs make you feel amazing. You feel so, you know, at peace. You feel so joyful, so confident. All the emotions that you'd want to feel, you, you suddenly feel you're on this euphoric high. But then once the drugs get their hold on you, then they start to abuse you Mm. and to destroy you and to take from you. And that for me was a real insight into what it meant to be really, you know, have an addiction because I thought I could really understand it's like a demon has almost possessed you and taken you over. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that really helped me was that I started to, to notice that every single one of the women that were addicted had the same story. They'd all been either raped or sexually abused as children. And that for me, again, was like I started to analyze how did this addiction start? And I thought they're running away from their pain. It's almost like they haven't been able to come to terms with it. They're so emotionally damaged that they have this facade of being okay on the outside and functioning. But actually inside, there's an emotional well of pain. And they are using the drugs to numb that pain and to escape from that pain. And then I could really relate to that because I just thought, we're all doing that on some levels, you know, we're all just using so more socially acceptable ways of doing it <laughs> right, right. and less destructive ways of doing it. But that for me was my real connection point with her. And I realized that we're actually, none of us are really that far away from addiction ourselves. That is all valuable from a psychological point of view, but from the actual physical presentation of somebody who's yeah. crack addicted, yeah. obviously you've now seen it from those mm-hmm. that footage, but what were you specifically doing, or I don't know if imitating is the, even the appropriate word, but yeah. Im, but mimicking in a sense from what you'd seen? What were the what were your ways into the physicality? 
so there are two things I, sh I should one thing I want to say is that I worked with this amazing accent coach called Tim Monarch mm -hmm. he was incredible okay. so we did all the sessions over Skype because as I said I was traveling right. and in ho different hotel rooms so I, I never got to meet Tim wow I still haven't so, met yeah. Tim <laughs> but so thank funny. you Tim yeah. you really helped me and so that was one thing and then in terms of the physicality what I noticed from watching these women was almost like it was like drugs took the lid on off of what was socially acceptable behavior. So they were very erratic. Suddenly they would be shouting. Suddenly they would stand up in interviews. They would hit something, throw something and then next minute be calm mm -hmm. and rational and relatively normal. Mm -hmm. And. I loved that because as a performer, because yeah. I thought, wow, that's so exciting. <laughs> you could just be totally free, right, you know? Right, right. And I loved exploring that. And so I was like a crazy woman in these different <laughs> hotel rooms <laughs> all around the world, <laughs> shouting, jumping on beds, throwing things, <laughs> banging things and, you know, and exploring her physicality as well. You know, exploring the, the physical damage that drugs do to your body because they ravage your yeah. body. People should know that this movie is broken into three chapters, years apart, mm -hmm. and you are the only performer who appears throughout all three chapters. Yeah. I assume you had to break down how she was different in many different ways in each mm -hmm. of these chapters because particularly when you're only around for three days to make the movie, mm -hmm. I'm guessing it wasn't done in sequence. It was not. Which no. has <laughs> got to be brutal yes. when you're playing somebody who's essentially devolving into maybe in some ways becoming more enlightened mentally, but mm -hmm. physically you're not going to get any healthier from yeah. this. So what in your mind was the breakdown for how she changed over the different chapters? So in chapter one, I basically she is, she's got a facade of, you know, as she's holding down a good job, she's a nurse and she's doing a good job of looking after her son as well. But she is, has this secret you know, that she's keeping from everyone. So that's how I saw her in, in the beginning. And she also looks healthy and, mm -hmm. you know, well and, you know, able to move well and so on. And in chapter two, then she's in full-blown addiction. She's like the worst you can possibly be. And her mind is only thinking about drugs. Right. She has lost all ability to really care right. and connect um, with her son and yeah she's yeah at the worst state you could be and physically as well the drugs are starting to ravage her body and then in chapter three it's the point where she's in rehab you only see her once actually in chapter three and she is full of remorse for the ways that she has damaged her son if you had to guess and I know this is always a tricky question but after the credits roll, what, what becomes of this lady? I think where you see her in the final chapter is where she stays. I think that she she does manage to keep her addiction in check, and that's because she dedicates her life to helping other people with addiction. Mm -hmm. So she has a reason to live, and she has a way of escaping her pain, which is by helping other people through their own pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the beautiful messages about the film, actually, for me, is that I think to play a character well, you have to, on some level, fall in love with them or at least have great compassion for them. And in the beginning, I had a lot of judgment about Paula and her addiction. But what I realized from doing my research and going on the journey with her is that actually she's doing the very best she can 
it's just she doesn't have the resources to do any better. She doesn't have the support to do any better. And in the final chapter, we see that she, finally she's got some help. So she can ch change her life. She can turn things around. And it's a really inspiring message. You know, it's a hopeful message that actually people with the right support can do better and can radically change. Was there a scene that you found to be the toughest one, tougher than the others? I think the middle stage was the toughest for me. I think my very first scene in the movie that I, I shot was when I was in full-blown crack addiction mode and really behaving in a very kind of psychotic, crazy way. Is this when she's taking money from her son? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So that was my the first scene that I shot. And to kind of go from naught to me, Naomi, <laughs> right. to this right. jump to this really deranged woman as she is at that stage. Yeah, that was very, very challenging because, you know, you've really got to throw yourself into it and be willing to make a fool of yourself. How early on in those three days did you realize that you were doing something special out of the ordinary and that you were part of something special? Maybe that part you can't know until you see the movie, but you've got to have a a read on yourself that this is not, you know, you're not phoning it in here. So what was your first realization that this was going to be a special one? I don't think you ever know. I think you're right in saying that you never know that the film as a whole is going to be special. But I, I knew before I'd got to set that I'd found something and connected with something that was very different from anything else that I'd ever connected with. I managed to find a level of connection with Paula that I didn't think it was possible to find a connection with, especially because she is so different. Yeah. But I, I found it very easy, actually, to be in her skin. I found it very, I was very comfortable there. And also I found so much love for her and also love for my son as well. So so maybe the, the final scene when we're um, in rehab together and he comes and ask him to let down his walls and I apologize to him for being a bad mother. I think that for me, I just felt something in my own heart mm -hmm. just kind of cracked. Yeah. You know? When did you first see the movie and what were your reactions? So I first saw the movie with my family before it, the music had been mm -hmm. added and so on. And it was a very rough cut. And despite that, my family, who are my harshest critics, <laughs> never, ever hold back. Right, right. Me about <laughs> and they were completely silent. They were all in tears. And they spent we were in a car journey um, back home and they spent the whole journey just saying, that was a brilliant film wow. and we completely loved it. And my brother is actually a film student and he was dissecting the directing and the cinematography and he was just saying it's extraordinary. And, and so that's when I thought, wow, this must yeah, be good. You got something I've here. never known my entire family <laughs> to agree on anything right. that I've ever done. Oh, before. that's so funny. It's rolling out at the film festivals. I just saw it again at the New York Film Festival. How do you think the general public and the black community are going to respond to this movie? Because in both the larger group and that smaller group, this is dealing with some subjects that are still pretty taboo. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what your sense is. Obviously, those of us who are looking at it from a purely cinematic point of view, everybody's, there, I haven't met one person that didn't like this movie. Mm -hmm. But it's going to rock the boat, I would think, right? I think those people who don't see the movie are going to have, may well have, you know, judgments about mm -hmm. what it's like. But I think, Anybody who sees this movie cannot fail to be deeply affected by it. And it's one of these movies that is so subtle 
it just manages to get under your skin and to affect your heart. So you come with all these kind of judgments about, you know, your views of what is right, what is wrong and uh, morally correct and so on. And then it actually just connects with you on such a deep, profound level that you can't help but to be moved and you can't help but to grow from the experience of watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Last few questions are just sort of big picture ones, but I just wonder how gratifying it's been for you to hear the reaction to your performance. I mean, you've you've gotten lots of great feedback over the course of your career, but I think this has got to be at a level that is new even to you. Is that Are you feeling that yet? Are you getting that sense? Has it reached you? I, I'm getting the sense that people really, you know, like it yeah. and love the movie. And But I don't read reviews. Okay. I always make it a point not yeah, to read right, reviews. Yeah, right, right. Because I, I just think, you know, if, if you start believing the good, then you have to believe the bad. Right. right? <laughs> which could be dangerous. So, which yeah. could be very dangerous. <laughs> and I see people being affected. You know, I, I, in Telluride in particular, I had one girl who came up to me afterwards and she started to talk about the movie and she just burst into tears and she ended up in my arms mm-hmm. just sobbing. And that's really that's so rewarding because ultimately that's, that's what you want. You want to be part of a film that affects people that deeply, that it's possible that it kind of creates some change. And I think that this movie is powerful enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find really exciting. And so finally, just... With the reception that this movie is getting, which is only going to be seen by more and more people in the coming months, it seems like, hopefully, and and, and I would bet a lot that people's appreciation for you and your abilities is only going to increase. And I just wonder, with that, if you could do anything you wanted with the next couple of chess moves or whatever of your career, what would that be? Is there anything specifically you're anxious to do? Gosh, that's a really hard one. Oh my gosh, you've stumped me now. I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know, I I just think I've been so fortunate to work with incredible filmmakers who have such vision and have really pushed and pulled me and helped me to grow that I just want to continue that journey. I just always want to get better, do better, do better work. So yeah, I think I just want to continue to work with great filmmakers, really who helped me to be the best actress I possibly can be. All right. Well, the word is out there. Contact her. You, you can look IMDb Pro it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. That was really fun. fun. Thank you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.